Welcome back to the Lime Podcast. My name is Aaron Alexander, and this is a place that we bring together the world's leading experts in all things health and wellness to help you optimize your mind, body, and movement. Today's gorgeous conversation was with my new friend, Sattvi Bhagawati Saraswati. Sattvi is a brilliant spiritual teacher. She is also very kind, empathetic, sweet, authentic human being that I'm really grateful to get to have spent some time with while she was here in Austin, Texas. Recently had a book called From Hollywood to the Himalayas, and she is, uh, she's been featured everywhere. She's been featured on CNN, New York Times, Discovery Channel, Travel Channel, BBC, NPR. She's really sweet. Uh, and what I really love about Sattvi is she lives in Rishikesh. She's lived out there for the last 25 years, but she originally comes from California and she studied psychology at Stanford University and graduated from Stanford University. So she has a really beautiful combination of Eastern philosophy, maybe like Western pragmatism, you could say. And that is what this conversation gets into. Before we start, I wanted to thank BioOptimizers for supporting this podcast. And I want to discuss specifically their magnesium. It is my favorite magnesium that I use. I really mean that. The reason that I like it, one, I like the, the flavor of it, which is a weird thing. I like to taste the supplements that I take. I don't know if I'm alone in that, but I do that. What's nice about Bioptimizer's Magnesium is it contains all seven forms of magnesium. Oftentimes if you're getting supplements or magnesium supplements rather, it only contains one or two or a few and also oftentimes it's a synthetic form. So this stuff is really high quality and it's like a full spectrum magnesium, you could say. Why does magnesium matter? What's well, very helpful for sleep, very helpful for the tonicity of your muscles, so helpful for supporting regulation of your nervous system. Uh, so if you have any kind of muscular soreness, if you're having issues with sleep, uh, you just want to train better, think better, magnesium is supportive. So I take it every night before I go to bed and it's supportive for my sleep and I think it will be supportive for you as well. And you get yourself a discount by going over to magbreakthrough.com slash podcast. That's M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash podcast yourself a sweet discount on their magnesium that is it that is all i hope you guys devour this conversation and i appreciate you tuning in here we go Pow. i wanted to thank you sincerely for making time to do this this is such an exceptional moment to get to get to share out here of course and i'm so happy to be with you this beautiful rainy lush morning such a beautiful place you have an interesting background that I was very excited to learn that originally you came from. Did, were you born in California? I was actually born in Colorado, but other than the fact that I've got mountains in my genes, yep. I don't remember any of that. We came to L.A. when I was a year old. Okay. And so... So I've been there since then. For 25 years, you were in the United States and in California, and you studied psychology at Stanford, and you were going like the very traditional route very traditional very successful i got my undergrad at stanford in psychology then was doing a phd in psych and had always had always succeeded and thrived academically on that path on that route and except for the fact that i loved the grateful dead and loved hanging out with those who felt so different than the majority of the people I knew from Stanford and loved that freedom of being and freedom of expression. 
aside from that outlet, I really was walking a very, very traditional path of here's what a successful life looks like. Here's what you have to do. And by God's grace, I got sent to India. What was the sending to India? So I was 25. As you said, I had been in California for the first 25 years of my life and ended up at 25 on a trip to India because my husband was on a spiritual quest. Oh, you were married. I was married. We got married right after undergrad. It was a very, very early, not particularly wise in terms of the fullness of one's mature development Mm. and the awareness of actually where paths are going. But it was perfect because he's a wonderful man. I'm so grateful for having had those three years. We were just married for three years. And he wanted to go to India. I had met him at Stanford. He was a year older. And he was reading, you know, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and was talking about philosophy and depth and transcendence and then went on to study at CIIS in San Francisco and was really on a, a path of spiritual exploration. While for me, I had the very traditional academic successful route and path and I was going to get my degree in a very traditional and accredited situation. But I also was spending a lot of time and energy on just managing my own life. I, in the midst of all of this privilege and opportunity that I had been born and raised into, I had been severely sexually abused in my very early childhood and then had been abandoned at the age of eight. My biological father had first abused and then abandoned me. And I had a lot of trauma that I was working through or trying to avoid working through. Were you aware that you were trying to avoid working through it or is this an afterthought? Well, it's, it was both. I was always very self-aware. And so I had developed a very severe eating disorder. I was very bulimic. You know, some people are bulimic in a kind of weight control, I ate too much last night sort of way. For me, it was much more of a way to avoid any and all feelings. And I had reached a stage actually where I could have written a book about it. I knew exactly why I was throwing up. And I would say to myself, you cannot throw up your anger at your father. You cannot throw up the pain that you felt. So I did get it, but that didn't actually change it. So all of the insight that I had, yeah, I used to say, God, I could write a book about why I'm bulimic, but I can't actually stop throwing up. And so by 25, I had, after being in and out of many different hospitals and treatment centers, had gotten to a point where I was managing it. I was making it through most days, eating and keeping down food. But I was like a dry drunk where what I thought about how I lived was still very much the addict, was still very much the sufferer. I wasn't actually free of anything. I just had developed this death grip of control over it. And here's what I eat and here's how I eat and here's how we do it. And and. 
I developed a lot of that around, around the pain, around the history. I had lived most of my life ensuring that I was never without a boyfriend, in many cases having them overlap. Just again, and I was even aware of it at the time, but that didn't free me from it, that this was the antidote to an abandonment issue. I was going to just make sure that I was not abandoned. And we get to India because my husband was on this spiritual quest. And oh, your husband brought you to India? He brought me to India. He was the one who said, let's go to India. And I had traveled a lot in Europe. We had spent a year in Ecuador teaching after undergrad, before my graduate work. I had traveled around America a lot. And I was a very strict vegetarian, not since birth, but since I was about 15. Had had all kinds of fights with all kinds of waiters and all kinds of languages I didn't speak about what the broth of their vegetable soup was made of or what the sauce was made of and was there chicken bouillon powder or cubes that they had used to season things or was there eggs in something or fish in something. And when he said India, the one thing I thought was, well, at least I can eat happily. That's me. And at least in India, they know what vegetarianism means. So I agreed to go and ended up fast forward a week, barely, maybe less, less actually, from the time that we had landed in India to the time that I was standing on the banks of the sacred Ganga River, the river referred typically here in America to as the Ganges, the river worshipped as the mother goddess. But I didn't know that. I just knew it was a river. Standing on the banks of this river, being given the most extraordinary experience of awakening. It felt like a veil was pulled, not just off of my eyes, but off of every single way of knowing that I had. And I could see. I could see my capital S self. I could see the truth of who I was that wasn't damaged and wasn't tainted and wasn't bad and dark and wrong. And the reason for the abuse and the reason for the abandonment, because I always had had this sense, no matter how much intellectually or therapeutically, I could try to tell myself otherwise. There was always this deep belief that somehow there was something so intrinsically wrong with me that I had deserved this abuse, that I had made that happen in some way, and that I had somehow pushed my biological father away and made him abandon me, that if I had been more right, more okay, more good, more worthy, that he wouldn't have hurt me and he wouldn't have left. So I had carried that with me. And in that moment, I could see and I could see the divine right before my eyes, outside of me, inside of me, as me, as everything, with no distinction between this and it all. And I just, in that moment, became so aware of the absolute perfection, the absolute divinity of myself, of everything. So I've talked with several other folks that have had moments like that, and I've experienced moments like that through maybe breath work and psychedelics and Vipassana. I've, I think I had kind of a little bit, of, a little bit of, of fleeting moments of that, especially towards the end. It's an ongoing 
process. You know, I, I feel like many people are like seeking, especially like spiritual seekers, you know, are, are waiting for this moment. They're going to find their guru or they're going to be by the, the Ganges River and they're going to have their moment. And it's, it's like this romanticized idea that suddenly everything melts away and I just transcend. I haven't, I haven't personally come across, perhaps you're that person, but I haven't personally come across a person that has had like a perpetual enlightenment state. It's like, it's, it's moments. And then, you know, chop wood, carry water, chop wood, carry water, chop wood, carry water. And we kind of get these windows, these vantages into this, ah, unicity, connection, safety, love. And then it's back into neuroses and back into work and back into rent. And then what do you think of that? (laughs) It's absolutely true. And it's my guru, by the way, lives in that continuous state and has since he was eight years old. Yeah, I haven't come across a person. I would love to I would love to have that experience. I I am not that person. What I can say is that the the moments of that state get longer and longer. The time between them gets shorter and shorter. The awareness that you're out of it gets quicker and quicker. It's like in meditation. You're in that beautiful meditative state. And then you're on item number 12 of your to-do list. And you have no idea even how you got there. Like, where did items 1 through 11 go? And where were you as you were writing that list? And as you meditate, as time goes by, you find that you catch yourself at item number 3 on the list rather than at item number 12, that you become aware that the mind has wandered a lot sooner than you used to. You know, you're not into the full drama and the full story before you realize that, oh, yeah, I was supposed to be meditating. But you notice it a lot faster, and you're able to bring it back a lot quicker. And I have found the same with the, with that experience of truth. I notice the out-of-alignmentness a lot faster. It feels a lot less sense of self. And so there becomes this very quick and very clear and very uncomfortable sense of this isn't my truth then enables me, pushes me to refine that place. And that's what the years have brought, is that the ability to stay in it gets stronger, the states get longer. I notice I'm out of it a lot faster, and I'm able to bring myself back a lot quicker. But, oh, yeah, the extraordinary experience of the divine does not, I believe, from my experience, free you from having to do your work. And my guru, by the way, is someone who came onto this earth into a family in which there just weren't any issues. You know, one of the things that I always say when people ask about that intersection between spirituality and psychology, like how do we deal with our neuroses and our issues and our patterns and all of that? Well, and that's where, that's where psychology becomes such a great asset to spirituality because it really shows us so much of that part of who we are. It's like, oh yeah, these divine states, one with God and the one with all of these neuroses, all of these issues. And for the very few and rare people who seem to have managed to come onto earth and get onto a spiritual path before forming any neuroses, before having any issues, patterns. I mean, his parents are pretty much enlightened. He was pretty much like this from birth. At eight, he was touched by his guru and pretty much left his family to go wander in the forests 
and mountains with his guru. So he didn't develop those patterns that kind of magnetically call our attention and our psyche back into them. But that's very, very rare. And that's certainly not my story. So absolutely, I have found that you have to keep doing your work. There's a lot of beautiful moments of being able to remember, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, wait. I'm not this role. I'm not this story. But it's so interesting how familiar it feels and how easy it is to slip into it. But there is, I think, value in being a custodian to the role. I think that, that one could venture into almost like a disassociation that's that's masked as non-attachment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> it, you know, <laughs> you, know, you got to brush your teeth. Yes. Yeah, maybe do some push-ups every now and again. Pay attention to what you're putting in your face. Well, that's, that's, that's different. That's the physical body. So there's a difference between care for the physical body, which is... Or care for the ego. A blessing, yeah. So let's take them different. Let's take them separately. Yeah. Physical body, in Hindi we say, it means the body is a temple. If God lives in us, that means our body is a temple. And in the same way that you would keep your literal temple clean and cared for, if the roof leaks, you fix it. You give it a new paint job. You take beautiful care of it. You sing in it. You chant in it. You pray. I mean, you do all of these things. It's a temple. In the same way we take care of this physical body. When I think about the roles, I find them actually really interesting. We definitely have to play them. We are definitely brought onto earth in a human body, in family, in cultures, in situations. Not because we're supposed to break totally free from all of that. That just doesn't make sense to me from a God perspective. Like... If you give someone a gift, could you imagine giving someone a gift where your highest intention for them with the gift was that they would totally ignore it, pretend it didn't exist, stick it in the back of their closet? I mean, can you imagine giving someone you love a gift and then you go over to their house and they say, oh, God, you know that that gift you gave me? You're going to be so proud of me. I totally forgot you gave it to me. I never look at it. I never think about it. It sits in the back of my closet, covered by everything. That doesn't make sense to me. But then it would also be kind of weird if you gave them a gift and then they turned it into an idol and started worshiping it. Absolutely. <laughs> really? Hold on, hold on. I didn't. Right. Not, not the intention. Not the intention. <laughs> it's just a puzzle. But yeah. the the intention with a gift is that the person should use it and benefit from it, whatever it is. It's a puzzle that they're going to just enjoy. It's a bar of soap. Anything in between, whatever it may be. You want them to enjoy it. You want them to use it. And in the same way, I feel like God has given us this human birth, this physical body, these hearts that feel, that love, that have compassion, that connect, these eyes that cry, these brains that create, that innovate, because we're supposed to use them, not because our highest goal is to ignore our own self and everybody around us, but actually because we're supposed to use it. And we're supposed to remember that we are not it as well. So you've given someone this gift to use, to love. I mean, these five senses, this beautiful physical body that enables us to see sunrises and sunsets and, you know, 
taste a beautiful glass of water or a cup of tea or swim in the lake or smell flowers or behold a loved one, hug a tree. We are absolutely supposed to feel and experience and know that. And we are also supposed to know that we're not the body. That even as the body changes, as the experiences of the body change, as the roles we play change, that we are that which is unchanging. We are the one, not disassociated, not disconnected, but the one who is there through it all. Seeing, knowing, aware, through it all. Otherwise, Today I've got this beautiful hot cup of tea. Tomorrow I don't, I'm miserable. Today I get to jump in the lake and love it. Tomorrow I don't, I'm miserable. Today the flowers smell very good. My loved ones are people I'm so happy to hug and hold and be with. Tomorrow we're fighting. I'm miserable. So otherwise we get lost in the roles. Or I am the doctor, the lawyer, the engineer, so-and-so's husband or wife, so-and-so's mother or father. I'm the, you know, rich one, the beautiful one, the popular one. Well, that's a lot to try to hold and hold on to because life is always moving. Stock market changes, size and shape of our body changes, the health of our body changes, the role that we play in our lives change. And if I am those things, then when they change, Not only have I lost a relationship or lost physical health or lost some money or lost a job, but I actually lose myself. And that's where suffering is. That's where when we were speaking last night in satsang about avidya, lack of knowledge, lack of awareness, that's what it refers to is the lack of knowledge, the falsehood of not knowing who you are, of thinking that you are the body, you are the role. No, play them, play the roles. Enjoy them, play them with duty and sincerity and love. But don't forget that you're the one playing them. Enjoy the body, love the body, care for the body. It is our medium of awakening. If I didn't have a physical brain that said, let's sit and meditate. If I didn't have a physical brain that was able to discriminate self from not self that was able to chant a mantra and watch my breath and find the space between thoughts, I wouldn't have the experiences I've been having. So the body is that medium. But we're not supposed to get stuck and think we are it. Not through disassociation, but rather through association. As we go back to what satsang means, right? Association with the truth. One of the things that came to mind, I'm a big fan of Ram Das. Mm-hmm. I think he's really great. And one of the things that I got from him, he had a, a bit where he was talking about, um, he has his, one of his teachers who happens to be like a, like a, a, a spirit. I'm spacing on the, the name of the mm-hmm. person now, but he communicates through this woman and he's, she channels him. And one of the things that was suggested to Ram Das was that he was dropped into this human incarnation why not step into the curriculum absolutely you know as opposed to kind of abandoning absolutely in fact that's one of the very core reasons actually that i just wrote this book because in spirituality especially in the east 
there's really this sense that spiritual beings are supposed to be free of everything that makes us human, even just calls of the body. Yeah, I think that's a trap. Hunger, fatigue, thirst, anything. There's this real sense of the, the spiritual leaders are not human. And, you know, I can't tell you how many stages I've sat on five, six hour events. No one drinks water. I am the only person in 25 years I've ever seen actually get off a stage, go pee and come back. <laughs> other than other than really, really, really old men who clearly have prostate issues and some younger disciple will come and kind of walk them off the stage for a little while and, you know, bring them back. Other than that. I've never seen anyone else get off a stage and go pee and come back. And I'm talking five, six hours. And of course, in order to do that, you don't drink water. And so it's this whole sense of a transcendence, but a transcendence that almost feels like a denigration of the physical body. And so much of the austerities are rooted in fasting and staying awake and you know my guru had to stand on one leg in tree pose 11 hours a day now there's a lot to be said for the discipline and the training of the body and of the mind but the idea that the body is something to be transcended or that our human experience is something to be transcended is i think a huge mistake i feel like some of those austere practices are to relieve whatever you want to call a person because we're in, you know, whether it's a, a spirit or an essence or a, a body or whatever, whatever, whatever that it is, or a unicity, we're all just know it's a part of a grander system or whatever, or just silence or oh, person. But our story of person, some of those austere practices are to relieve us some of some of this, the stickiness of the idea that we are just the body. And then you can get so deep into the practice that that becomes the idol in and of itself. Exactly. And then you, Perhaps. Yeah. Exactly. So the practices are intended to teach us that we are not the body and that we have choice. The practices are there to give us the awareness of our freedom. So for example, let's say I've decided today is my fasting day. So say I fast every Thursday or I fast every full moon or every new moon or every Akkadashi or whatever it may be. Well, the stomach is going to growl. That growling of the stomach is going to send signals into my brain and that are going to say, eat something, I'm hungry. Maybe they're going to get stronger and say, if you don't eat something, oh my God, you're going to pass out, you're going to die. But if I know I'm fasting, I don't eat. And what the message actually that my psyche gets is, there is a call in the body, chemical signals coming to the brain, I don't respond, and hey, I'm still here. Sky hasn't fallen. I haven't exploded or imploded. I haven't ceased to exist. The world didn't end. And that's a very, very powerful lesson because most of us move through the world really as, you know, puppets to the calls of our body. And so these practices were developed fasting or staying awake all night in prayer and meditation. Again, the body is saying, let me sleep. The brain is saying, I need to sleep. But you've made a commitment. I'm going to stay awake all night and meditate or chant or pray. I'm still here. Sky hasn't fallen. I haven't ceased to exist. So these austerities are given to us such that when we go back to eating and sleeping, 
we remember, no matter what call there may be, what impulse, what instinct, what urge, that I know I'm actually free. I've got a choice. I can eat or not eat. I can sleep or not sleep. I can respond to that urge or not. But that ultimately I'm free to make that decision. They're not meant to denigrate the idea of the body or of our humanity. And the same is true in terms of our emotional state, our feeling state, our challenges and struggles in this human experience. And it's seen, again, especially in the East, that spiritual leaders don't have any of that. We're really expected in many ways to be above all of that, beyond all of that, like never feel anger, never feel frustration, never, none of that. And I think that's a great disservice, both to the spiritual leaders who are expected to not be human in order to maintain their spiritual leadership. But I think it's also a great disservice to those who don't consider themselves spiritual because they feel so mired in their humanity. And there's a sense of, I can't be spiritual until I have overcome all of these aspects of my humanity. And I think it's so critical to bring humanity back into spirituality and to bring spirituality into humanity. There may have been a time in history where spirituality could be that which just existed in caves and existed in silence, exclusive silence and exclusive meditation and practices of yoga. But I feel like right now what we need of spirituality is to infuse and inform every single being on this planet with the awareness that regardless of what I am struggling with, what I feel mired in, what my overwhelming humanity might feel like today, ultimately I'm a spiritual being. And one does not preclude the other. One does not make you disqualified from the other. I mean, I had always felt so disqualified from spirituality, disqualified from grace, unworthy of it because, well, I had been sexually abused and, well, I had an eating disorder and I struggled with addiction and depression and anxiety and all of that. I mean, obviously I was unworthy. And that's so untrue that that was one of the real motivations for me in writing the book was to really make people know grace doesn't discriminate. Grace isn't there waiting for you when you've transcended your humanity. Grace is there for you right now in the throes of your humanity, of your exquisite, beautiful humanity to remind you that ultimately your spirit, ultimately even in the throes of this drama that, yes, we all have to play and engage in and fulfill with sincerity, nonetheless, at the same time, to maintain the awareness that I'm not it. I think about an actor on a, on a stage playing the most brilliant role, but always being aware on some level, no matter how deep into the role they are, that ultimately they're the one playing it. Of course, it includes the villain. And yet, no matter how great of a villain an actor plays, you never hear of someone who goes home and kills his family because he forgot that he's only actually playing that role in the TV show or the movie or the stage production. 
Well, there are instances of, of actors overdosing and, you know, ending their own lives as a product of going through, um, you know, like method acting themselves so deeply into a role that it starts to change their mental, emotional, physiological identity. Absolutely. Humans are impressive with their capacity for adaptation. Yes. And yes. Their, sto- their stories can start to, you know, it's like the mask, Jim Carrey. And so I, mean, I think that's probably some of the, the allegory of the mask. And we just need to make sure that it doesn't get stuck. And that's why for me, I love just a really simple daily practice in the morning and the night of every morning after meditation, just a moment of an experience of literally zipping up the roll. Think about it literally as just zipping it up. I'm gonna play these roles today. And I play them well and I play them with love and I play them with sincerity. And they are the, the dharmic roles that I've been given in this part of this life. And you play them throughout the day. And at the end of the day, but of course, even as you're playing them, you, this is why we meditate as much as we can or just have moments of checking in and awareness, whether it's before eating, before drinking water, as we walk, however many moments during the day we can have to just remember, oh yeah, I'm the one wearing this costume. And then at the end of the day, like the actor literally washes off the mask and washes off the costume to just have a moment of literally feeling yourself unzipping it and a few moments of meditation before going to bed. So just keep reminding yourself, oh yeah, I play that role, but I'm not the role. I want to take a moment and thank Eaton Hemp for supporting this podcast and share one of my absolute favorite protein-rich snacks. And that is, of course, Eaton Hemp's hemp seeds. Hemp seeds in general, but I especially like Eaton Hemp's because I trust the sourcing of where they're coming from. They're all organic and they really give a dang about the quality of the product. Uh, hemp seeds are an excellent way to pick up some extra protein. They're a complete protein, which is rare in the plant world, and they contain a whole plethora of vitamins and minerals, including iron and zinc and uh, a lot of things that we can really use in our modern diets. I really enjoy the pink Himalayan sea salt hemp seeds that I'll put into smoothies or salads. A really important factor to incorporate if you drink smoothies is to make sure that you make them crunchy because when you are chewing, you are releasing enzymes in your mouth that break down carbohydrates. So if you are just blending up a smoothie and not putting some hemp seeds in there at the end, you're making a mistake. You're missing out on a vital process of digestion of carbs, which is chewing that stuff up in your mouth. Make sure you're chewing your smoothies with Eaton Hemp's hemp seeds. I really, truly love this company. I think they are fantastic. I stand behind them 100%, and I think you guys are going to really enjoy their products. If you don't absolutely love the products, you get your money back 100%, money back guarantee, so you got nothing to lose, and it will absolutely improve the quality of your diet and quality of your food. So you get yourself a discount by going over to eatonhemp.com slash align. That's E-A-T-O-N-H-E-M-P dot com slash align. Get yourself a 10% discount and you'll get yourself a delicious organic protein boost for your diet. I also want to thank Element, Element T for supporting this podcast. 
I have been a fan of Element for the last year, and I literally drink at least one Element packet every single day. It's a beautiful, simple, easy, delicious way to improve the quality of your water, and it is a perfect balance of sodium, potassium, and magnesium. So it is a true energy supplement because that's what it takes for your cells to produce energy. So really great stuff, great sourcing, delicious flavors, and you can get yourself a free sample pack. So go over to drinklmnt.com slash align and you can get yourself a free sample pack. You just pay five bucks for shipping and they'll send you it out. They've got a bunch of delicious flavors and improve the quality of your exercise, especially if you're sweating a lot. Uh, and just in general, you need to have electrolytes, you need to have minerals in your water in order to be able to assimilate and absorb that stuff into your cells. So jump over to drinklmnt.com slash align for a free sample pack of Element. Prove that water. Right, here we go, back to the show. I wonder, someone asked you last night of purpose and destiny and dharma, and if that's like, if we have like a predestined path or, and, and the thing that came to my mind is I, I feel like humans perhaps are, are kind of like stem cells and that they will, they will adapt to whatever, whatever's required of them. You know, whatever tissue they're around, they can kind of, you know, it's like an open slate and they can, they can adapt to, you know, whatever's necessary for the body to heal. That was kind of like an analogy that's coming to my mind. Cause I don't know that, and perhaps this is incorrect, but when we're born, you know, do we have a set destiny and a path of where we're going? Always wonder with like thinking of people that we've, most people, there's a, a general consensus that they're like evil, which I think the original meaning of, of evil is just to like miss, miss the target. But you know, a Hitler is obviously the one that, that comes first to mind but anyways any any of those folks and then i think of the hitler as like a little boy that's like playing baseball and wants to be an architect and has all these wishes and desires and you know had a malformed penis apparently and had insecurity around girls and you know has like oh like i have so much compassion for that boy you know and then he adapts or maladapts to fit some role and i wonder i guess i had one kind of question but then another question is is can you mess life up can you miss the mark or does everything happen just as it's supposed to? And if you can mess this life thing up, what does that look like? First, in terms of the destiny aspect. That was like 12 questions, actually. I think. <laughs> We're not exactly like stem cells. We don't come into this world as empty slates. We come in with what we call a, a karmic package. And that's going to be the result of all of your past births. It's going to be the result of the astrological energies at the time you were born. It's going to be the result of the family of origin you took birth into, the culture of origin you took birth into, the physical body that you took birth into. All of these things are part of that package deal of karma. What we do with them is up to us. And that becomes, the, that becomes the opportunity that we have to really co-create our destiny. So when you think about something being predetermined, well, yes, things are predetermined. But right now is the pre of tomorrow and next week. So when we think of predetermined, we tend to think of something that was determined thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. And some part of it may have been, 
based on some really old past life. But a huge chunk, a massive chunk of that determinateness, the predetermined parts, the destiny, is being written as we move through the world. And so the choices I'm making today are actually creating my destiny for tomorrow. One way to think about it is think about, like, let's say that right now you've got a cow. Now, the cow is that which has been predetermined. You can't change it. You can't send it back and get a kitty cat instead or a puppy dog instead or a goat instead. The cow is what you've got. But the cow gives us several things. It gives us milk, which assuming that the cow has been raised and fed organically and is wandering happily through your your field and your farm and all of that and is very happy and never gets killed, well, then that milk is actually wonderfully nourishing and nurturing for you if you drink it or make yogurt or cheese. The cow also gives us manure, which is a fantastic organic fertilizer, can be used for all sorts of things, can be turned into a wonderful eco-friendly way of lighting a fire instead of using wood. But if you dump the milk in your field and you eat the manure, you're going to get sick and your crops are going to die. But that's not because it was predetermined that you were going to have a bad harvest and you were going to be sick. It's because you took that cow and made certain choices with it that then determined the next few days or weeks or months of your life. And that's where, again, satsang, that association with truth, is so important. It's where spiritual study is so important because in life we get these cows that we may not know what to do with or what it is or, hey, what's this white stuff? What's this brown stuff? What do I do? And that's where we get, where we get guidance so that we can actually fulfill our highest calling. So I don't think of us as stem cells that could become anything. But the question becomes rather, how can you with an awareness that who you are is perfect and full and whole and complete and divine, manifest that rather than try to be something else? So if you're an apple seed, you can chant orange mantras over it all you want. You can scream and yell at it all you want. You can planted in a grove of orange trees. You can make vision boards covered with oranges, but that apple seed is never going to give you an orange tree. And tragically, then what you also end up with is no apples from the apple tree because you've made the apple tree feel so miserable about itself that it kind of withers and dies. So you end up with nothing. Whereas one of the great and critical goals of a spiritual path is to understand, ah, I'm an apple seed, or even not necessarily knowing, doesn't matter. I am a seed. God knows. God knows what fruits I'm supposed to give. My job is just to ensure that I open, that I sprout, that I grow, not to freak out about what fruit is actually going to finally come from my branches, but to have faith in the wisdom of the universe, rather than looking around and saying, oh, why don't I have oranges or why don't I have bananas or the rose bush wishing that it were jasmine or jasmine wishing that it were rose? Everything in nature is so perfect. But this mind that is just mired in separation and illusion is constantly telling us 
that there's something wrong with who we are, what we are, that we need to be more, do more, be different, do different. And so I think about us as the caterpillar who is so worked up about the fact that the millipede's got a thousand legs and he's only got a hundred, that he never actually hears that sign or signal from the universe that says to climb the tree and become the butterfly. And so that takes us into actually the second part of your question. Can we miss it? Yeah, you can miss it. If that caterpillar is so worked up and so preoccupied in looking at every millipede and being so miserable that the millipede's got a thousand legs and how did I get stuck with only a hundred? It could absolutely miss that call that says climb the tree. And that's where quiet and stillness and reflection and meditation are so important. Because if we are so stuck in thinking what we need, grace can't flow. There's a beautiful story of a man who decides that he's ready for enlightenment. And he's done a lot of, a lot of different work. And he asks everyone, so who's the best guru who can just give me enlightenment? And everyone sends him to this one guru in a cave up on the top of the mountain. So the guy walks and he walks and he swims through the river and he climbs the mountain and he gets into the cave and he bows at the guru's feet and says, I'm here for enlightenment. And here's what I've done. Here's what I've experienced. Here's what I've learned. Here's my challenges. Here's what I need from you. And the guru says, have a cup of tea. And the man's like, tea? I don't have time for tea. I, I'm here for enlightenment. The guru says, have a cup of tea. And he goes into the back of the cave and he comes back with a teapot and two teacups and he starts to pour the tea into the teacups. And he's pouring and he's pouring and the teacup is filling and filling and filling. Now the teacup is full, but he's still pouring and the tea is now splashing out over the top of the cup and running onto the floor of the cave. And the guy says, what are you doing? Stop. The cup is full. It can't hold anymore. And the guru says, your mind is like this cup. You're so full of who you think you are, what you think you know, what you think you need, that there's no space for me to give you anything. Just like I can't give you any more tea till you drink what's already in this cup, until you empty yourself of this preoccupation with who you think you are, what you think you need. There's no space for this grace to flow. And so... The way to miss it is to be so, so stuck in the mind, in the role, in the drama, that you miss the whole backstage experience, that you miss the whole off-the-stage experience. But here's the thing. The universe is infinitely patient. The universe has no agenda that it has to happen in this lifetime. We've been given, it said, a human birth because a human birth is the seen as the, the pinnacle of evolution, spiritual evolution. And it's interesting because on so many levels, I think, really? Like, we're also kind of the only species that kills others for no purpose. I mean, we're not going to eat them. Any other species kills others just because either they need it to eat or because that other animal was threatening them. So either to save their life or for food. We're the only species that actually actually harms 
out of fear, fear to our ego, threat to our ego. Primates do that. I think gorillas. I don't know which which ones exactly, but if they're they're mating with a new female, they'll kill the babies of the female if it came from another partner. Really? Uh, wow. I don't okay. know which one. Maybe gorilla, but 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 yeah, that's a thing. It's like well, a, they're they are our closest our closest relatives. So on that level, it doesn't feel like we're the pinnacle of evolution, but we are seen as the pinnacle of evolution for one reason only. We have the ability that it is believed no other species does to be aware of ourselves, to be conscious of consciousness, and therefore to make choices and decisions like that. And so we've been given this human birth, this human experience, to be aware of ourselves, to be conscious of ourselves, and to be able to free ourselves of that drama. But you know what? If you want to wait till next life, the universe is patient. It's like, okay, you don't get to go from fourth grade to fifth grade till you learn how to do long division. But the principal's not going to lose sleep over you getting held back in fourth grade. They're going to do everything they can to help you move on. They'll get you tutors. They'll get you summer school. The, the universe is going to send you everything. All of these signs, all of these signals, all of these experiences. But if you still decide, nope, I am just here for the drama, just here for the five senses, just here for the physical body. Okay, no problem. Come back, do it again. Yeah. I wonder with the, I loved all of that, but I wonder... With the story, I was thinking of this in the beginning. I had like a little little bookmark story of of being in a state, you know, longer with practice, and then you know the neurosis season, all that stuff comes in. It's a little bit shorter, and then I'm in this state. This like, and I wonder if perhaps there's a little bit within that that can be like a purple herring in and of itself. Like there's some state for me to arrive at. Purple herring in the sense of like a distraction, something that's like creating a separation from myself. And so, oh, I'm in this state where I feel anxious or I feel depressed or I feel greedy or I feel, you know, any any of that stuff is coming up, the things that I've kind of put the label on as being like not good, moralistically wrong or bad. And like, I want to be in this transcendent state. And I wonder within that, if, if that in of itself is almost a game. Absolutely. Well, and what's interesting is, as I'm sure you've experienced, it doesn't work. You cannot push away anger or greed or neurosis. You cannot decide, I'm just going to push you away. I'm going to now be transcendent. That's denial. It's repression. It's, you know, gets you into the whole realm of spiritual bypass where I'm not seeing what is. I'm going to just block it off, lock it up, push it away. And it doesn't work because it doesn't actually take you into a place of freedom. The highest goal of spirituality is not transcendence, it's freedom. And so when I'm in anger, when I'm in greed, when I'm in neurosis, it should never be about how do I push this away and become transcendent. It's about how can I bring my awareness back to the truth of who I am, which isn't about pushing away. It's not about aversion. It's not about repression. It's about in that anger. So as I was saying last night, when these states arise, for me, I basically stop whatever I am doing and just allow it to be. 
So whether it's closing my eyes and sitting into meditation, whether it's standing and raising my arms to the sky and just allowing it to flow through me, the only way through is through. You can't get through by trying to push something away or lock it up. But what ends up happening is that these states end up not having the ability to, they lose the stickiness. They're only sticky if I'm trying to push them away or if I'm totally unconscious in them. You feed power into it with the pushing. Absolutely. You're, you're gathering your energy and in, in the pushing, it's, it's like you're literally charging it up. Well, and, and exactly, you're giving your awareness. It's like saying, I'm, okay, so if I say to you here, I'll just give you an example. If I say, close your eyes for 10 seconds and whatever you do, don't think about elephants. Just don't think about elephants. No elephants. No elephants. So what did you think about? Of course. In the same way, by trying to push away those states, we are literally filling our conscious awareness with them. Not going to be angry. Not going to be angry. Not going to be angry. Not going to be lustful. Not going to think about my father. Not going to think about my mother. Well, what are you thinking about? All of that. It has literally just brought all of your awareness onto that very item that you've just said, I'm not going to think about. The way through it and therefore beyond it and free of it is to just allow it as an energy to flow through you, but without giving it a story. So anger is there. Okay. Raise your arms to the sky and just let it as an energy pour through you into the earth. If you can do it barefoot, it's even better. Just feel it literally go through you into the earth. Or close your eyes and sit in meditation and feel it like a wave rising, peaking, and crashing over you. You're in the midst of a neurotic moment. Allow it. Get curious about it. Enjoy it even. I find myself fascinated in those moments. Like, wow. That is so interesting. Look at how that is impacting you. And it actually teaches us so much about ourselves. And it takes us to whole new layers of our own psyche, which we then get to peel back. I'm really enjoying this conversation, by the way. As we're talking, I'm like, I wish we had three hours. <laughs> I just got this, this thing it's a, called a sadhu nail board. I'm all hot and bothered about it. You stand on it, it's like a bed of nails. Have you ever seen this before? I'm, I'm sure they're, they're popular in like Russia and some countries like that. But essentially, it's, you know, it's a board. I'm sure lots of folks in, in India are probably partaking in such things. Bunch of nails, you know, your weight's distributed across it. When you stand on it, it feels like pretty like, oh, this, you know, not wise to be here. I feel like it's going to puncture, but it doesn't puncture. And then with time of, of standing on it, it's like this really, you know, you start to relax into it and you start to, you know, it, feel my breath starting to expand and starting to be able to navigate that relationship with the sensation of, of pain and, you know, identifying with the pain compared to, because I know I'm not getting hurt. It's just sensation. It's nothing more than sensation. And then what I find myself as I start to kind of gather my marbles and feel a little bit more resourced, you know, and, 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 you know, acceptance of what is, I find myself actually seeking the pain, you know? And so I find little parts in my feet that I'm like, Oh, like that part, I feel like there's still some sensation in there. So it's like changing that relationship of, as opposed to it being something to push away, if you're not identifying with it, then you can come to a place of like, Oh no, this, what an interesting, I can dance with that problem. I can dance with the game. Absolutely. I 
discovered that technique in the very beginning when I moved to India 25 years ago because we have morning prayers in the ashram. And you sit on the ground. And I was not used to sitting on the ground cross-legged. And I would find my hips and my knees and all of that would start to hurt. And then when I developed my own meditative practice, same thing. After, you know, 30, 35, 40 minutes or so, there's this thing that says, change the cross of your legs. Like just move that body. And I found that in the beginning, I got really distracted. The mind was like, oh my God, my knee hurts, my hip hurts, and it would steal my meditation because my mind would go there. God, I wonder how many minutes left. Why can't I see the clock from where I'm sitting? Why is this thing going on for so long? But then I developed a meditation around it where I decided, okay, so it's there. It's present. I'm not going to be unaware of it. Let that become my meditation then. And I started shifting my meditative focus onto that. And I found myself speaking to the pain, saying, really? Is that all you've got? Yeah. Really? You can't get any hotter? Come on. Yeah. I'm still here. I'm still here. Come on. Give me, give me your best shot. And just taunting it very lightly and jokingly. And it takes us back to what we were speaking about earlier about the austerities. Is it trains the mind to know I'm still here. There is a sensation in the body. There is an experience in the body. There is a call in the body. I don't respond to it. Sky doesn't fall. I'm able to still be here. And I don't implode or explode. And it was such a powerful, powerful technique of just, yeah, going right into that and being present with it and actually realizing how much the pain dissipates, how much power it has when you're trying to push it away. Mm -hmm. This is what life is. The more we try to push things away, the more power they have over us. And this is why for me, as I was sharing last night, the practice is always a practice of spaciousness. Just how can I create enough space in which my peace, my joy, my bliss, my freedom can exist in the face of the fact that my knee is on fire and it's going to be another 20 minutes before I can change the cross of my legs. Yeah. Krishnamurti has a quote. He says, my secret is I don't mind what happens. Mm, you yes. know, which essentially is all, you know, all of that. It's like, it's like if you're working out in a gym, you're working out in preparation to reinforce the body for life. And so thinking of the same thing, having these, these, what can seem like really, you know, wild or crazy or strange, austere, austere practices. It's essentially a gym, uh, from my perception, a, a gym to train the mind and the body and the self Absolutely. in preparation for life. Because that's what that is. It's every moment throughout the day, you're coming to moments of acceptance or denial or attraction or aversion. And you're playing that game all, all throughout the day. But if you can start to relieve that stickiness through having some practices, and the practice could just be maybe paying attention to your breath every now and again, or paying attention to the weight of your feet in the ground, or paying attention to anything. Just pay just attention. Like life just asks for attention. And we get to choose what we give attention to. And that becomes the key is what am I going to give my attention to? Because whatever I give my attention to, that's what grows. That's right. what flourishes and blossoms. Yeah. And now we're in a time of surrendering our attention to tech, which is a whole other conversation probably for another day. Yeah. It's, well, it's such an opportunity to stay conscious because it's a fantastic tool. And that's all it is. It's a tool. 
Fire is neither good nor bad. It can cook your food or burn down your house. Technology allows us to connect across the world. It's extraordinary. And it can steal our lives. It enables us to have the world at our fingertips. But it can also make us forget that there's a world beyond our fingertips. And so the goal becomes, how do I use this as a tool rather than get used by And it's the same practice of the attention and the intention and the awareness. Where do I become a slave to someone's algorithm? And that's what happens to so many of us is we literally just move through our day a slave to someone else's algorithm. Someone has programmed it in such a way that we will feel a certain way, will respond to the feeling in another way, usually by clicking buy here. And that was not what we had on our plan for the day. And this is where we've become beings who react rather than beings who act. We spend most of our lives just as these, you know, balls in a pinball machine that are just bouncing. And, you know, you're causing a ding over here and ringing a bell over there. And it's just somebody else has pulled it. And that's where reclaiming our attention is so critical. And that's, again, going back to where the silence and the meditation and the introspection is so critical because otherwise we literally just become these balls in the pinball machines. Yes. Rudolf Steiner has a a quote paraphrasing something along the lines of, if you don't become the master of ideas, then you'll become the slave of them. And I think that that happens with, it can can be a metaphor for a lot of things. Absolutely. But a, a person... In the world that we live in, if you don't choose sovereignty, would maybe be a, a relevant word for the times, but choose to, to be the master. And maybe master is a story and you know everything's a dream and all that stuff. But in the dream, choose to reclaim one's power or mm-hmm. sovereignty or mastery. Then inevitably, someone or something or entity or whatever we'll it be it. that has will co-opt it. Absolutely. And so it's it's taking that time to actually, and then I think it comes into maybe some people don't want to be the master because that's a lot of responsibility and there's fear in that. And I want to have a daddy and I want to have a mommy. And, mm-hmm. you know, so where is my daddy? Where is my mommy? Who's I feel daddyless and mommyless. Yes. Maybe tech, maybe government, maybe president, maybe religion, you know, maybe boyfriend, maybe girlfriend, you know, Absolutely. so, so being honest with oneself perhaps and asking the questions like, do you want to be the one? And again, if not, no problem. That's life. <laughs> like the universe will wait. And you're not going to be able to fulfill your purpose, your dharma, until and unless you reclaim that freedom. In Sanskrit, moksha is the word for freedom or liberation or mukti. And that is seen as the absolute highest goal, the highest goal of human life is to attain moksha, freedom. People think about it, though, frequently as freedom from the body, so something I will attain after I die. But it's actually freedom in the body because it isn't the body that's the problem. It's the mind that's the problem. And so if the mind is the one that is stuck with, where's my daddy, where's my mommy, I don't want to step up to the plate of my life because I've got this... Great excuse not to. Yeah, what if I mess it up? Yeah. 
I'd rather replace the blame on someone else because I wasn't, I was never responsible. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And, and it just gives us a really easy out. It's a really easy out. I don't want to step up to the plate of my life because that is a lot of responsibility. Yeah. And I may fail. And then who do I blame? And yet, if we don't step up to the plate of our life, we miss it. We absolutely miss it. And this is where I always say there's no spiritual scripture or teaching I know of in which God says, come to me, surrender to me, realize your oneness with me, and I promise you will never get sick or die. No one you love will ever get sick or die. You will never get divorced. You will never get fired. The stock market will never crash. Everything you do will be widely successful. We're never promised that. What we're promised is come to me, realize your oneness with me, surrender to the divinity. And no matter what happens, no matter what goes up and down in the world, you will not go up and down. You will stay anchored. That's the promise. But we tend to think of the universe as kind of a vending machine. And if we've had a couple of experiences of sticking in our metaphoric dollar bill and pushing the button for the chocolate bar that we want and what comes out instead of chocolate is carrots, we think, oh, the vending machine's broken. Doesn't work. Forget it. Without realizing that actually that which we're being given is being given to us because that's what is the best for us in this moment. That's what is the most conducive for us to take our next step of our own flowering. But you've got to step up to that plane. That's, that's the courage. That's why. If you want the juice, then you got to step up to the plane. Absolutely. <laughs> but you, could, you don't need the juice. You, well, it depends what you mean by need. You could absolutely yeah, you live your life without it. You can live your life just in the drama, just in the physical body. You could do one of those, eat, drink, and be merry. He who dies with the most toys wins sort of life. But you know what the truth is really from what I've seen? Forget after death. Forget next life. Forget any of that. That doesn't actually even bring happiness in this life. So people think that they are avoiding pain by not stepping up to the plate, by not taking the risk by just eating, drinking, and thinking that they're going to be merry. But what I've seen is that doesn't actually bring the joy. People who live without a, a deep connection, doesn't matter what our tradition or faith or practice may be, but people who live without a deep connection to spirit, to soul, to consciousness, to God, to love, to truth, are not living happy lives. Forget enlightenment, forget transcendence. They are just not happy on any level beyond the most superficial surface level of that was a great ice cream cone. Yep. That's not happiness. And so even if your only goal is I want to be happy in this life, you actually still have to step up to the plate of your life. You actually still have to develop create the opportunity for the experience of the truth of who you are. When you just live in the waves, for every wave that goes up, it goes down. And yeah, it's fun to surf for a few hours, but you do that 24-7, 365 days a year for your life, it gets really tiring. No longer 
living on those constant up and down waves because we're not anchored or grounded, because we are just on that superficial level. We are not surrendering to aware of living the curriculum of that human experience that recognizes its divinity, that recognizes the core truth of who it is, while simultaneously loving and embracing the humanity. And that's, that's the whole point of, of the open-heartedness and that trust fall, as I was saying last night, that trust fall into the universe. Yeah. Yeah, you may fail, absolutely. And if you don't step up, you miss the whole point of life and you will not be happy even in this point, of, even in this life. And so we take the chance. But you know what? Even when you, when you do trust falls and you do them in school and you do them with team building programs and corporations, even the stranger catches you. Even the competitor, even the schoolyard bully catches you. It doesn't happen in trust falls that people just step aside and allow the person to crash into the ground. There is something that every human who has stood behind someone who is falling into our arms in a trust fall, regardless of how we feel about them, there is something that springs up from within us of knowing, I must catch them. There is no alternative. And in the same way, the universe always catches you. That doesn't mean it's your vending machine. It doesn't mean it always does what you want, but it always catches you. And we have to, have to just have that trust. And if you don't have trust in, in God or spirit or divinity, don't worry. Have trust in the, the perfection of the universe. Have trust in that wisdom that makes seeds know how to sprout, that makes caterpillars become butterflies, that makes trees not just grow, but that makes some trees know that they have to actually grow horizontally love those, right? I mean, you think every other tree is growing straight up. And yet every once in a while, there's a tree. These trees behind you. People tuning into yeah, the YouTube exactly, video. Right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and sometimes in the forest, you see a tree that literally this massive trunk of the tree is growing sideways. Yep. Because for whatever reason, where she was planted, where she grew, if she grew straight up, she would suffocate. There wouldn't be light. And in order to get her light, she needs to go sideways. And so from within her comes an intelligence that teaches that tree to go sideways. And so have faith in that. I love it. Thank you so much. Of course. I really want to keep talking. The la- the we'll last, do it again. Yeah, we'll do it again. The last little, another Rudolph start. I'm reading a thing from Rudolph Steiner right now. The quote from him was something along the lines of, if you're limited to the pleasures of your senses, then you'll miss out on the treasures of life. And I think that that's kind of like the wave thing. If we, mm. you know, Victor Frankl has pretty much the same quote where he says, those who lack purpose will seek pleasure instead. Yes. And so it's always seeking that sensorial yes. pleasure train. Perhaps, you know, it ends up being like a void filling thing. And, you know, it's an of endless. It's endless and it's unfulfilling. It's unfulfilling, ultimately. It's absolutely unfulfilling. It's fun, but it's like fireworks. Like, oh, that's cool. This is great. Well, see, I would, I would debate you on the funness of it. I would say it is only fun when you are not needing it to provide you with the happiness. Sure. But there's spirituality in immersing yourself and appreciating even the trite things of life. Oh, of course. But if, you're a, if, you're, if you're a slave to it, then that's, that's the difference. It's all relationship. It's all about Everything freedom. just is. It's all about the relationship to the thing. Absolutely. For me, 
just the easiest way to understand it is it's all about freedom. Yeah. Are you having the ice cream cone because you enjoy it? Yeah. Wonderful. Savor every bite. Yeah. Are you having it because actually you're feeling depressed or bored or anxious and you need it because that carbohydrate numbing is going to very temporarily make you not feel yeah. depressed or anxious or bored? In the second case, you're not actually able to enjoy the ice cream anyway. So the fun that you're having, the enjoyment that you're getting out of these pleasures of life, in order to really enjoy them, it actually requires that you're enjoying them rather than using them. Going back to the original thing of like this place out there, and I'm in this state more or less, or like this, creating the separation between what's happening in the here now, this experience, versus I'd like to be over here. I think once a person comes into acceptance that there is no over here, over there, there's just right here, then suddenly that house of cards if you really come into acceptance with it, I have not, but I've talked to a lot of people that have, and I kind of sniff it around it. I think that house of cards will crumble. And I think that, you know, there's lots of stories of various different people. It's oftentimes in their, in their search for transcendence or freedom or whatever it is, it's typically upon surrendering. It's not upon working to get to that, that place. I will conclude with a story. And the story is of a man who was yearning for God and doing everything that he could to find God, to experience God, and not able to do it, not able to find God, not able to experience God, and he's frustrated, and he sits down on the edge of a river screaming and crying, God, this isn't fair. Why am I not able to see you and forget it? I'm just going to end my life, hell to all of it. And at that moment, a fish jumps up out of the river and is kind of flapping around in, in the air. And the fish says, water, water, water. I need water. I'm going to die without water. And the man says, you silly fish. You live in the water. You're surrounded by water. There's nothing but water. But now you've jumped out of the water and are flapping around, screaming that you need water. Just go back in the water. And the fish looks at him, and I love stories because in stories, fish talk. And the fish looks at him and says, the same is true for you. There is nothing but God. But you have, through your mind, created this separation from God. And now you're screaming about wanting to be one with God. Just go back to the truth. Just go back inside. Love that. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So I haven't had the opportunity to read Hollywood to the Himalayas, but I'm super excited too. It's out presently. It is out. It came out August 3rd. And you have essentially like most, a good chunk of people that I greatly admire and respect that left you uh, endorsements on here, ranging from Jack Kornfield, Jack Canfield, Deepak Chopra, Prince EA, wrote the foreword for it. Like, holy crap. And Jane Goodall. Oh, Jane Goodall at the top in the front. Yeah. How the heck do you get Jane? Are you, do you know Jane Goodall? I do. What a lovely thing. She is my lifelong ah. hero. Yes. My absolute favorite <laughs> part of the entire book is the Jane Goodall quote on the cover. Yes. I agree. Sorry, I missed that. That was the first thing that I saw. I was like, I was like, what? It came out August 3rd, and it's my story of literally going from Hollywood to the Himalayas 25 years ago. The healing the transformation that I experienced on the banks of Ganga. What I've learned in these 25 years 
in India. And all of the, as Jack Cornfield would say, the ecstasy on the laundry. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm listening to that book right now, actually. That's a good one. Yeah, all first, of it. First the ecstasy, then the laundry, then the laundry. however it goes. Yeah, yeah then the laundry. Yeah. There's always a laundry. Always the laundry. Yeah. There's always the chopping of the wood. There's yeah. always the carrying of the water. It's so great. it's it's the ecstasy. <laughs> it's the expansion. It's the carrying water, the chopping the wood, the cutting your finger off by accident while you're chopping the wood. It's all of that. Right. Thank you so much. I am so excited to dig into it. I so greatly enjoyed this experience getting to be outside here to you in Austin, Texas. Me too. Well, thank you so much. It's been such a joy to talk to your community. Beautiful. All right. Thank you all for tuning in and over now. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. I want to especially thank people for writing reviews because it's a helpful way to support the podcast. Costs you nothing, takes you a few seconds. And I want to read a review. I'm going to start doing this. This comes from NYC to Connecticut. Uh, Aaron adds value to the interview. Aaron's podcast has been part of my five main podcasts on rotation for years now. So it's time to write a review. Thank you for that. I love his podcast because he has a consistent open approach to each interview such that he connects more deeply, asks great probing questions, and draws individuals into a real conversation that always has some gem moments. Thank you so much for that. New York City to Connecticut. I apologize for not reading the title correctly. What a dumb dumb. So if you write us a review, you could say some silly shit if you're so inclined and there's a reasonable chance that I would read it on here. Hopefully it is a five star review if you feel the podcast deserves such a thing. I appreciate you guys sharing this. I appreciate you telling your friends. Hopefully you're implementing some of the information that we get from these conversations. And uh, for four, if you want to share it on the Instagram, you can tag me at Align Podcast and you can tag Satvi at Satvi G. Uh, S-A-D-H-V-I-J-I. All right, that's it. That's all. Thank you so much for tuning in. Appreciate you. See you next week. Bye.